coming up on another episode of the Front Page Football Podcast. Myself and Antonis Pagonis were joined by none other than Daniel McBreen, Network 10 commentator and analyst, of course, covering and being a part of uh, the A-League men uh, commentary team with uh, Channel 10 and Paramount Plus. And yeah, we caught up with him to discuss a whole bunch of different things from Daniel's uh media career and and what he's what he's doing on the broadcast side of things but then also a bit about his playing career a bit about what he's doing uh, with coaching in in the northern new south wales and newcastle region and just a general discussion about development and 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 young players and what they need and all the all the good stuff that we like uh, talking about here at uh, front page football and speaking about us and our content Make sure you're going to checking out, you know, some of our previous podcasts that we've done. If you haven't catched them already, we had some great guests on recently, the likes of Mitch Duke, uh, Nikolai Topol Stanley, um, uh, Jeremy uh, McGann on his Canberra football podcast. He also had uh, Ash Sykes recently as well. Did a bit of a different insight. So yeah, we've had we've had a whole bunch of really good guests on of late on the podcast, and hopefully gearing. Up towards uh, the A-League seasons, we're going to have Front Page Dub returning with Cody Ajay and Matt Olsen. We're going to have our weekly A-League pods back as well. And uh, yeah, full focus now turns to the A-League's seasons. Um, but of course, if you want that constant daily, I guess, updates from us, then check out our social media, particularly our Twitter. Uh, make sure you're following us and getting around it. Um, and of course, our articles, frontpagefootball.net is where you can find all of them. So yeah, just thought I'd... Uh, Give a little quick plug before uh, we got into this podcast. But yeah, myself, Antonis Pagonis, Daniel McBreen, it's on right after this. Welcome back to another episode of the Front Page Football Podcast. It's been a while, um, about probably a month or so ago, we had a few guests on um, and we've been able to secure another one uh, for the latest episode of the podcast. Um, and it's kind of timely, a little bit. We're only just over a month away uh, from the new A-League men's season and also the A-League women is about a month away on the dot. Um, and tonight we will be joined by a man who will be heavily involved, as he has been, uh, in the commentary side of things once again for the 2023-24 campaign. Uh, first of all, before we get to him, I'm joined by uh, Antonis Pagonis, FPF writer. Uh, Antonis, how are you going? Yeah, I'm good. How are you? It's been a while, like you said, since we've done one of these, and I don't yeah. think I was on the last one, so it's good to be on here to have a chat again. Yeah, yeah, it has been a while. Of course, we've had, uh, during the World Cup, we had, uh, Cody and Matt doing the, the World Cup pods. So yeah, now, uh, now we're back into, I guess, getting our guests on and finally to our special guest. Uh, and it's none other than Network 10 commentator and analyst, Daniel McBreen. Daniel, how are you? I'm fantastic. Thanks. Thanks for having me. All good. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure really where there's a lot of different avenues we could, uh, we could start. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think, first of all, um, you know, I just mentioned there, Network 10 commentator and analyst. I think, first of all, we probably want to get an insight into, into that. Um, and the, the, the broadcast side of things with the A-League, of course, like I mentioned, we're only just over a month away. To start off with, has, have things kind of started to ramp up in that sense? You're starting to get ready, uh, with the, with the broadcasting side of things for the new season? Yeah, yeah. Look, it always starts off with the Australia Cup. We start to get in a bit and, and ease our way in that way, I guess. And, uh, obviously there was a Socceroos on the weekend and 
Yeah, the planning and all, all the stuff starting to go out for the season. Now the draw's out and we've, uh, you know, we're starting to get together and, you know, the all usual things we have every year with referees meeting and APL meetings to see if there's anything new we need to know about for this season. So it's always an exciting part of the year. Obviously, transfer uh, deadline day as well um, in just not long, actually. Uh, yes. Yeah. So <laughs> seeing all the teams starting to finalise their stuff and been a hell of a lot of movement with players this year as well and, and some coaches as well. Absolutely. Actually, you just mentioned that, um, and it was only just announced yesterday, uh, the time that we were recording this. Uh, Nick Montgomery, of course, uh, has departed the Mariners for, for Hibs, um, in Scotland. Um, I, I was going to ask you about this anyway later, but, but since you mentioned coaches on the move, um, what, what, what do you make of that move, uh, for, for Monty? And then also, I guess the Mariners, have you got any names, uh, that you've thought of as a potential replacement? It seems everyone, every man and his dog wants Ben Khan from, from, from the, uh, from the, uh, looks of things on, uh, just, on Twitter for two minutes, but um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, Ben's name's mentioned a lot, isn't it? His name's been mentioned quite a lot over the years. Um, you know, I guess it's he's been at the Mariners before when he was the youth team coach many years ago. Um, he's obviously applied his trade in Queensland and now Melbourne. Um, and everyone seems to be saying that he it's the right time for him. Um, look, there's been plenty of names thrown about. You know, John Hutchinson, I heard his name, but he's in Japan with his family, and I think he's on a good project there. Um, Warren Moon has been. Um, his name has been thrown around the last couple of days. I actually spoke to Mooney and he's always been pretty honest with me so far. And he said he hasn't had no contact. So I think we could probably squash that one as well. But, um, look, um, you, look, you got off Itale as well. Um, for me, I think he's a fantastic coach. Whether or not, uh, the Mariners could afford someone like Wafuk, uh, is probably a different kettle of fish. But, uh, I think it's going to be a really important, um, appointment for the Mariners. Uh, Monty and Serge, his, his, his partner in crime, have basically been there for the last, what, six, seven years. They set the platform with the academy. They helped set that up into the way it, it's running now. Uh, they moved up and, and have done such a wonderful job. Outstanding. Probably, well, not probably. They definitely have overachieved. Um, so it's going to be a, a real um, shrewd appointment needed now to maintain that momentum and keep things going the way they have been and also going to be difficult. Mariners have got a target on their back now as champions, so it'll be interesting to see what happens. How are you, like, how surprised are you by, by what Monty did? Like, it just, and even just the Mariners in general last year, um, of course, being an ex-player at the club, um, you know, I think we're all just completely shocked as, as the grand final was unfolding and, and just the way they ripped Melbourne City apart. Um, but, you know, um, you look back at the achievements and what he actually accomplished in in only two seasons. Um, to to do what he did was 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 pretty special. Yeah, well, I think you guys actually tweeted out his accomplishments in the last two years, and I, I retweeted it because it was, it was you know incredible achievement. Not only for the fact that you know they've done all that stuff, but it's done on a shoestring budget. And I can tell you, I've been talking to a few of the coaches in the off season, and they're not happy with Monty, obviously tongue in cheek, because their chairman is saying, well. If Monty can do it on that budget, why why are we spending more than that? And <laughs> and they're cutting the budgets for the first teams. But look, fantastic um, job from Monty and Serge. And I've asked Monty plenty of times about you know his, his Sergio Raimondo, his, his his second in command, and he said we're a team. We have been from the start. We've gone through together. They've added people to that team. But I think together they've been exceptional, not only on the coaching aspect, but the idea that they 
you know, they can spot a player that maybe on the outer, uh, maybe is a misfit from somewhere else, isn't quite working for them. Uh, they can, they can spot a player that's probably undervalued by other people or don't know how to get the best from them and have done it time and time again. Um, and I think that's been a credit to the two of them, uh, and their network. Uh, and now they get the opportunity, uh, to go and do it on the other side of the globe. And Hibs is a big club in Scotland. It's a shop front window. If they can, you know, it's a big club. It's not doing too well. If he can do what he's done at Hibs, the same as he did at the Mariners, well, he's in the shop window for top championship, you know, premiership clubs. And, and I've had a lot of people ask me that question over the last week or two since these rumors started, if it's a good move. And I just think sometimes that people underestimate how being in the shop window so close over there, you know, everything's, everything's so close and everything's so, um, they all watch each other. I think it's it's a very good opportunity him for not only to use this, and I don't want to say already that it's a stepping stone, um, but the world's your oyster. You do well there and, and you can go anywhere. Um, do you feel, and we've had this conversation off air, I feel like this championship is one of the most impactful A-League championships we've seen moving forward because it's not like, say, Championship X full of these experienced players that come from overseas, that move on. These players and coaches as well will see develop over the years now and impact our landscape. Is it, do you feel what they've done at the Central Coast, I guess, kind of like a guidebook on how clubs should be operating moving forward in your eyes? Yeah, look, I joked about uh, uh, head coaches talking about their, their chairman saying that they're going to cut the first team budget. That's all good and well. But if you invest that into your academy and you get an academy going with full-time coaches um, with the right ancillary staff that goes with that, then you're going to give yourself the best position to produce these players and do what the Mariners done. You know, you might have to invest uh, X amount of dollars every year over the time, but once you get that system up and running, the Mariners have proved that and you're and tailor that with shrewd scouting and bringing of players that are maybe on the outer. Um, you can then turn it into a, 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 a model that can actually pay the way for you. Maybe not make it profitable over the long term, but every second year, if you're like the Mariners, I think made over $3 million in transfers this year. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's, you know, I think it's pretty open um, that they, they were losing $3 million a year. So they've paid for this last year. It's paid for. All right. So they're back to square one. So you can basically say, well, that $3 million is there to reinvest again. Let's go again and let's find the next crop of players. Now, it's not going to happen every year, but if you can get a model that's set up properly and you're producing those players from 13 or 9 all the way through, well, you give yourself the best place to actually do this, bring young players through and and produce them and sell them off overseas. Mm -hmm. And about a decade apart in championships, obviously you had a very different role in the last championship in the middle of everything. How was it, I guess, seeing them succeed but from I guess the media side of things and being able to follow that story through the whole year and seeing them do it on the big day when they get there again especially after all the tough times in between there mm. yeah look it was great and right from I will say pre-season there seemed to be and we spoke about it constantly throughout the year because uh, obviously people reference 10 years 10 years it's been 10 years there seemed to be this vibe, this this culture, this uh, feeling around the club that we kept saying feels like 10 years ago. The same culture and, and, and um, that us against them mentality and the community together that Graham Arnold was using 10 years ago. And Monty, Monty seemed to be able to manufacture that again and create that same thing. And when you spoke to the players throughout the year, 
the feedback you got from the players was very much the feedback we used to say as players when Graham Arnold was in charge. And you felt something brewing all the way along. Did we all think that they would win 6-1 in the grand final? Probably not. We thought maybe, you know, they might get there and have a chance. But the way that it all unfolded as the season kept going along and you talked to the players and this group and they, they you know, talked to the community and they'd say all the players go to lunch together, they go to, to breakfast together, yet they see them everywhere. It's like this family bond. It mirrored and the 10 years just made it even better that they went and did it because there were so many similarities. The, the, the way they spoke about Monty was so similar, as I said, uh, and it was just fantastic and I'm just glad. That Jason Cummings let me keep the regular season goal tally, and then he went and beat me for the full season goal tally with his hat trick in the final. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and now, are, are you happy that now Jason's moved to India? Now he's, you know, he's a few oh, less look, seasons I'm potentially. Happy for him. He's gone and got his payday. Um, <laughs> look, we talked plenty of times during the season, and um, you know, we actually spoke coming towards the end of the season, and I, and we, I was like, I told him, I want you to break the record. Go and do it. Um, and he was disappointed that he didn't when the regular season finished. And I, we sat down and had a lunch together after a training session when I was down there. I said, just relax. Don't think about it. Just go and play. And I joked and said, you'll get a hat-trick in the final. It'll be great. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and he went and did it. I didn't know he was going to do it, but he actually did it. So fair kudos to him, mate. He's, he's deserved, you know, he's had a, he's one of those players that had a rough time, um, you know, probably due to some of his own behaviour, he will tell you, but um, he got a second chance and Monty gave him that second chance and he took it with two hands and didn't he go well with it? Yeah, and one thing that has really stood out for me from that recruiting is you, we talk about, yeah, the young players that are on the outside, but the internationals have been not your stereotypical internationals. You have the guy with the reputation from Scotland. You've got uh, Brian Kaltak, who's never played professional football before. You've got Benny and Kalolo from the second or third division of France. It was, it's a real interesting mix. And like I said, it's not the ones you expect. Do you feel, I guess, that a few clubs can learn from that to look outside the stereotypical destinations and leagues when they look for players and characters as well, not just players, because all of those are great characters too. Yeah, exactly right. I guess we could call them Monty's misfits and he knows how to get them all together. But that's, yeah, 100% you should. Look, Monty came from a, a, a hard background in, in Leeds. You know, he's um, he fought hard to get where he was. He come from, a, you know, his family weren't well off. He come from a rough area, a tough area, and they fought and scrapped for everything. So he knows the value of seeing people who have down on their luck and need a second opportunity. He's seen it his whole life. And he's that kind of guy that will say, all right, I'll give you another opportunity, but he's very strict with that as well. It's like you get that opportunity, you don't get a, sec a third chance. You, you, here it is, I've laid it down, perform and do what you're supposed to do, and he gets the best out of him. You know, people make mistakes in life, and um, Monty was good enough to give people chances that other people had written off and said there's no chance, and, you know, there's plenty, plenty more out there. Out there. Mm, absolutely. Um was not expecting to start the podcast about five, six questions about the Mariners championship. Um, but, uh, yeah, I did want to get back just to, just the broadcast, broadcast stuff. Um, and the media work with you. Um, so what, what, what have you found, I guess, have been the challenges, uh, moving into, moving into a role like that and, and, you know, commenting on games and giving your own kind of thoughts and potentially having sometimes to, you know, criticize a player or criticize, you know, a team for their performance. How have you found that? Uh, look, I think it's, at first, 
you get, especially when you first retire and you come out, you know, you know, you still know a lot of the players, well, pretty much all the players, um, especially in Australia where it's a very tight network. Everyone knows everyone and you do worry that you're going to, I guess, make, piss people off, I guess, say the wrong thing, you know, not, not everyone likes to hear criticism, but I, I think I've gone with the philosophy of I just tell the truth. I be honest. Uh, I will never, go out to criticize someone for the sake of criticizing someone. I don't want to, I don't try not to go over the top with it. Um, but if I'm asked a question on a performance of a player or a team, I, I'm just honest. Uh, I think players respect that. Uh, you know, if I'm sitting here and you say, Oh, you know, how is such and such played? And I go, Oh, he had a good game today. And I'm just sort of gloss over it. He knows at home he's had a stinker. He doesn't need it to be rubbed in his face. But if you're asked the question, you have to say he hasn't had his best game today. He hasn't done this right. He hasn't done that. And most players will go put their hand up and say, you know what, 100%. They, they're the first person that know whether they've played well or not. Um, so I think in that respect, you just have to be honest. Um, it's, it's tough sometimes because, you know, you, you know some people or you don't want to be negative. Um, and you try to look, you do try to pick the positives and you'll always want to try and talk up the games because no one likes to sit here and be negative and, and, and we all like the game and want to help promote it. But sometimes the truth needs to be told. And, yeah, if you're honest, I think, yeah, people will respect it. Did, did you find, um, having played, that it's easier to go into um, a role as like an analyst and also you coached? So was was that easier or was it harder? Uh, I think the coaching side of it, you know, seven years of coaching um, from I've done everything from community to youth team to A-league assistant to the national team assistant for Guam. So I've got a broad spectrum of that. So you get to really look at different ways to, one, talk to people and talk about the game, um, how you get your your information across, you know. So if you're going to be talking at an A-league level, you're not going to talk to the same to someone who's in a community level. You, you, so you get to, to analyse and, and look at things and, and explain things differently. So I think that sort of the coaching side of that helps massively obviously having it being a player you understand what players are going through and you can tend to sort of think okay i can read he thinks you know he was thinking to do that but he's changed his mind to do this um and again i think you just got to come down and tell it how you see it you know two people can sit there how many times have we sat there watching a football game with someone next to you i say one thing and you say no 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 and we have a, a disagreement or or a conversation because we see things differently again i think it just comes back to you got to be honest and open, and th- this is what I've seen. Um, person next to me might see something completely different. That's why we love it. And um, players, and I'm sure you were asked as a player your favourite moment as a player, but now as a broadcaster, again, new moments, but in a different way. What has been your highlight, I guess, as a broadcaster in your time doing that? Um, I guess being a part of the grand final last year, being the ex-Mariner and the Mariners, the way they won it, um, you know, being down on the sideline and the crowd, that was a to, to be a part of that broadcast and calling the game when you see, you know, a friend of mine going out and coaching his team and that, see what they've been through. Um, to call the Socceroos games, you know, this is not a career, I'll be honest with you, that I ever, ever thought that I would go down the path of. Um I got a phone call some years ago asking if I'd like to do a half-time thing because I don't know if you guys will remember, I used to muck around behind the the interviews when we had it in the change room because at that stage I was on the other side of the foot and I thought there's no way that uh, cameras should be in the change room. That's our inner sanctum. So yeah. Graham Arnold gave me permission to ruin 
any any interview that I could by mucking around in the background. Fox hated it at the time. The media manager hated me at the time. Arnie was like, "Keep doing it," and because of that, uh, I got the job. I got asked to come in, and it's taken me seven years to 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 go to the full time um, side of it. Um, so it's been a lot of hard work and working, you know, three jobs to to get through and work coaching and doing other coaching and. Um, working in schools, coaching, and while I'm doing all that to get where I am today, and I, I'll be honest, I absolutely love it. Uh, I love the people I work with. I love the fact that I'm around football. You can talk about football. Uh, you can, you know, it gives me a great excuse to tell the missus that I have to watch football all weekend because that's my job, so there's not much you can do. Um, but, yeah, look, just working with the people I work with, getting to still be around football, and, and, and as I say, getting to call some amazing games. Um, talk about amazing games. Go back to that. Western United um, game against Melbourne Victory. Was it last uh, year before last? So last year 4-3, Yeah, where they came back yeah. uh, the second leg of the semi-final when they looked yeah, like yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, you meant, yeah, yeah. I was, yeah. I was, I was actually at that game. That was that ridiculous. Was, that was crazy. You know, Victory were coming and coming and they looked like they were going to run away. Then Western United came back and to call that game, I think that was at the time I was with, I think it was with Simon. It was just epic to call that. I remember... Putting our taking our cans up and putting down and just going wow that was a what a game to call that was yeah and um obviously you may you mentioned how it wasn't something you ever thought of doing and when you don't have that thought that I'm always going to do this not going to do this maybe when you go into the job there's a couple of things that just catch you by surprise anything like that that really I guess threw you off when you started the most the hardest thing you get to get used to when you first start is when you have your earpiece in and you have a producer talking in your ear. Um, I remember the first time I was talking and, and obviously when you're with your, they need to cut to go to a commercial or go to the next segment, they'll just be in your ear and they'll be going, rap, 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 rap. And I remember being in mid sentence and they said, rap, and I just stopped. And everyone was looking at me and I was really like, and then you sort of realize, Oh yeah, no one else can hear that. He said rap. So I, I started talking again. Um, you know, and you can get caught out sometimes. You don't realize you're on camera. And I think everyone knows I got caught out once having a bit of a dig at the Mariners, um, talking to a producer in my ear who was also a Mariners supporter. And we were talking about, uh, the game and got caught. So these little things that you don't, no one really sees and knows what's going on. And you've got someone talking in your ear while you're trying to make a point, um, can be quite difficult to get used to. But over time, you, you do get used to it. Yeah, Antonis and I have um, started doing commentary and stuff this year. We did for uh, Football SA um, on the local, on the NPL. And uh, my first game doing boundary reporting, I went through a halftime interview uh, and camera was on me and everything, but the microphone was turned off. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, luckily, you know, local level community, you can kind of uh, get away with some mistakes here and there a bit more and all about experience, right? So, yeah. yeah. Um, you've got to do, you have to do your traineeship or your internship, yeah. whatever you want to call it. You need to get your trade. You know, you, There's no point trying to get to the top straight away, and that's in any industry. I remember Graham Arnold asking a few of the senior players if we wanted to go into coaching because he thought we, we, we that would suit a path for us. And he said, don't try and become an A-league coach assistant or too soon. He said, go and do all the stuff down at the lower level. Make mistakes. You know, then when no one's watching you, you can go, I've learned from that. So when you finally get your opportunity, and that's whether it's broadcasting, anything, playing, coaching, whatever, you've got to make those mistakes. And you're going to make mistakes. No one's perfect. 
Um, as long as you make them when there's 10 people watching you and not 10,000. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I was going to ask you as well, just kind of last sort of thing on, on, on the media stuff. Um, like there seems to be in recent years when we look at, you know, sports pundits, analysts, stuff like that. I mean, I think of someone like Stephen A. Smith in America. You think of like even the Premier League now with Sky Sports, you've got Gary Neville, Jamie Carragher, Roy Keane, like they're all personalities. They're really big personalities now. And it almost feels like sometimes when you're watching it, you almost feel like the producers are getting their ear and saying, Hey, you know, Jamie and Gary, you know, make sure you have a crack at each other tonight because then we'll share it on social media and it will go, it'll go crazy. Right. Um, like what? What do you make of that? Do you, do you watch these guys? Do you t- take anything from them, or are you just you know this is my style and I'm not going to really deviate from that at all? Well, I like to have a laugh and a joke anyway, so I'm usually getting pulled, the one being pulled back in the line. Um, you know, it's good when I get together with Archie because he likes to have a laugh and a joke and doesn't take himself too seriously, so we can have a bit of fun. Um, but look, I think it's great. I think it's great entertainment. There's no, um, there's no. It's not a a mistake that they've put those guys together because they work well off each other. There's no no mistake that um, Roy Keane is now partnered with um, oh, his name's just gone out of my head. Michael Richards. Michael Richards. Yeah. Why why have they partnered those two together? Because one's the dry, one's the laughter, and they work off each other, and it's brilliant entertainment. Uh, it's, it's not a mistake that that's done, and I think it's great. And the more people we get talking about that stuff, they're in, engaged in the game and. But also, not only do they just, they're having a laugh and a joke and taking the mickey out of each other, they're giving valid football talk in amongst that as well. So they're interspersing some good laughs and a joke with real football knowledge. Um, so it's great. Yeah. Um, I think, Antonis, was it you who made the joke that, uh, Raleigh Dobson might be like kind of the A-League's Roy Keane kind of? Um, she had a couple of comments that kind of mirror that. But that's right. You need, you need, I guess, as Daniel's saying, there's, characters as well yeah. and it's not just saying something for the reaction saying something because and we've had this conversation as well when we've said something and people have come and bitten back which i don't mind because i say things that as you said daniel I actually believe and if i believe them, i'm happy to stand by them and i'm sure this is what all of you guys do with your own spin on it as you said you like to have a laugh other people do it differently you just say what you see and you believe it and the beauty of it is we don't, we don't all agree and you can actually discuss it yeah, mm. I love it. That's exactly right. We don't. Well, that's what the beauty of the world and football is that in sport, in football in particular, like I said, two people can sit and watch the same game and get two completely different uh, ideas about that game. So as long as what you're saying is what you is true to you and what you believe, and you and if pressed, you have a reason why, and you have your facts and and your ducks in a row, then I have no problems with that. Disagreements are, are, are great for the game. Would, how boring would it be if we all just sat there and went, oh, yes, I, I agree totally with you. That that ball was a great pass. Like, that's not entertaining. Mm. Get up and get the gloves on and get into it. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like we've got to get Bozza back. What, what, what's going on there? Can we... Can we, can we... <laughs> <laughs> There's a man who's not afraid to say what he wants. <laughs> I was thinking about the other day, like, oh, yeah, remember when Bother used to just like destroy Melbourne Victory after they lost a derby or, or something <laughs> like that? But nah, um, let's, let's wind back. And Tony's mentioned it before, uh, when we were discussing the Mariners and when you won the championship, but just, um, yeah, we can talk about that season individually and let's talk a bit more about your playing career. Um, I mean, that was arguably your best season in your career. I mean, you won, uh, the title, of course, um, the golden boot, the Joe Marston medal. Um, what 
what was that whole experience like? Um, and even the grand final, because of course, a couple of years earlier, you had the, the heartbreaking defeat to, to the raw, um, with the, with the Padlu header and all that sort of stuff. And then, you know, to come back and then face, I remember, you know, against the Wanderers in the grand final as well. And, and the Wanderers, you know, outnumbered you in the stands, but then to win that. And it felt like a big moment for Graham Arnold and his career too. Um, yeah. So when you reflect back on, on that season in particular, I guess what kind of, what kind of goes through your mind? Just happiness, I guess. Um, the whole, my three years at the Mariners was enjoyable. Uh, I learned probably more as a player in those three years from the coaching staff and Graham Arnold than I had probably done previously. Uh, Graham, not only did he understand us as players and humans, but he, he made us look at the game a different way. Uh, understanding of the game became um, a lot better um, positionally, tactically, with, with you know individually as a as a unit, um, and it was a great bunch of people as well. And I think that the heartache of the 2011 Grand Final just bonded us and made us it sort of galvanised us a bit more to well we we know we're good, we know we can we can do this. And that year just everything clicked. You know, I think the right people were there at the right time. Um, you know, players who came in fitted perfectly. We tweaked the way we play, played a little bit. I went from being myself personally from an out-and-out striker to more of a deeper-lying sort of false nine or as a, or a ten um, that I felt suited me. I really enjoyed it. And I just think that year on the park and off the park, everything just fell into place. We we just had this, um, I don't know, this this feeling that we, we all worked well together and it was, it was a great time uh, in my career. Yeah, and of course... You know, you had a great season and scored a lot of goals. What's when when you were kind of coming through and then, you know, you had you're scoring goals in the A League and stuff, and then you look now um in the A League at the strikers, I guess, that we've got and and you know, some of the young Australian strikers trying to come through, like what's what do you identify as, I guess, you know, the the important attribute for, you know, a number nine and someone, you know, trying to really, you know, get fifteen to twenty goals a season, particularly in a league like the A League? Depends what kind of a striker it is. I could sit yeah. for hours on this. Um, look, it's, first of all, you want to have the, you, of course, you need to have the technical ability and, and a, a striker for me, a nine really does have an innate sense. Yeah. You can coach them and, and guide them into right areas and, and make them better, but they tend to have an innate sense to be at the right place at the right time. It's a natural thing that comes with them. But for me, the overriding things you need to see is that determination that, um, willingness to learn. Um, they need to have a bit of swagger without being too arrogant. You know, you don't want them to go too far on that line, but they've got to have that cocky, cocky, um, confidence. Um, and again, it's, they've got to be given a right environment. If you, you could have, you know, the best player, if they're put in a terrible environment, uh, that doesn't foster them to grow, then they won't grow and we won't see the potential that they can, they can reach. Um, fortunately for us, we've seen, Plenty of clubs at the moment uh, are really giving youth a chance and fostering those kids coming through. So we've obviously got some good coaches in, in those um, younger areas that are that are bringing them through, and then they're polished off a little bit more uh, and honed their skills a bit more by the first team coaches, and and we're seeing them come through. The strikers are the hardest position. Um, you know, we've always always said when I was growing up, if you couldn't 
if you couldn't score goals, you got chucked up the back to try to stop people who could play football. Um, you can, it's easier to make defenders than it is to find a, someone who's going to give you. Um, but yeah, look, that determination, that drive, that willing to willingness to do the extras and push themselves and strive to be better uh, is is uh, key elements for me. I like asking this question to strikers because I feel personally that we don't play enough Australian strikers regularly in our own league. And if we don't play them in Australia, who will play Australian strikers? How are we going to produce the next Tim Cahill? And you see our two senior Australian strikers here in Australia in Taggart and McLaren, who actually in their own young age had to move around the league because they weren't getting enough game time. Do you feel, I guess, because it feels like every club goes out and signs a foreign striker like without even thinking about it. Do you feel like a few clubs should make a more conscious effort to do that, to play the strikers? Not every club, but the clubs, like you said, that have that striker in the mould that you just mentioned. Yeah, look, oh, look, of course we'd like to play all Australians. Um, but when you're a head coach and you're given a mandate to go and win the league, uh, like we said, it's they're probably the hardest position. Strikers, senior players through the spine as well, you see that they're the ones they'll go for, attacking players in particular, because it is hard to find strikers or breed strikers that will score goals. And if you're given the choice to go, right, oh, we can go and get this striker from overseas who's got a pedigree of 200 games and 120 goals, uh, you're going to pay them a million bucks a year or you've got this kid who's untried and untested. Um you know, you can see why the head coaches are going to go for that because their job's on the line. Um, is it detrimental to Australian football or Australian strikers? Yes, 100% it is. Um, but I just think it's the, the way that we're set up, the way that it is that, um, I, unless there's some brave coach out there whose chairman says, I don't care, just go and do it and put them in, I can't see it changing too quickly. And, um, you know, unless there's this, superstar kids that come through that are just flying but it's hard to break through um because they will go down that path for success i guess the one probably caveat to that um and this could open a whole can of worms which which we're not going to go down under but you know there is of course no no relegation right so i uh, could you could you argue you could make an argument and this isn't just strikers and you're right there, there's definitely a few clubs who who are doing this anyway um who yeah probably could Maybe give more opportunity and and take take more of those risks. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't have really a disagreement on that. There's no relegation, yeah. but chairmen still want to win, don't they? Owners yeah. still want to win. They want their team to be successful. No one wants to sit at the bottom. We saw what the Mariners would like for six, seven years, mm. um, and it was dour. It was awful. Um, and being an ex-Mariner, it was hard and painful to watch. And when you went out in the community, your team's at the bottom every year. The, the fans, it was hard for them as well. So regardless of being no relegation, there still is that um, pressure to win. Um, and, you know, maybe that pressure isn't as much as overseas without the relegation. Um, and yet I would argue that probably you could start to give smaller chunks of game time to, to players throughout the season, um, particularly if you know, all right, season's sort of going on. You know, not going our way or we can't make the finals, well, start blooding them, start playing them, give them some minutes, whether it's 20 minutes, 30 minutes, whether it's giving them a game, one every game, every four, just start getting them some exposure. Um, but yeah, it's still there to be, to be won. And you mentioned Arnie before, who, who you worked under, of course, um, for, with much success. Um, and now 
seeing actually commentating on what he's doing, you know, with, with the Socceroos, um, which, you know, I have to be honest, I'm sure Antonis will say the same thing. We're, we're surprised, you know, at, at how he was able to turn around after, you know, after, um, the, like, particularly the Japan defeat when, when you look at the reaction after that. Um, what's, you know, give us some insight, I guess, into working under him back then. And then also, did you foresee something like this playing out for him later, later down in his career? I'll be honest, I always thought that he'd probably be a national team coach again at some stage. Um, and this is no disrespect to other coaches I've had, but he was head and shoulders above. Um, and you speak to people who had him when he first started coaching. I think it was 2007 in that Asian Cup. And, you know, speaking to him back in the day about that, uh, he said it was probably too soon and, and there was things that weren't in his control as a coach when he was there. And um, he's not apportioning blame to other people, but he's saying that he took it too early and he didn't have complete control and that's his fault. Um, but... And, and you speak to players from back then and they're like, mm, you know, his man management wasn't too great either, but he was learning. And like he said to us, you need to learn and you do your apprenticeship and, and you make all your mistakes. Well, his mis- one of his big mistakes was taking the national team before he was really te- ready to take the national team. He went away. He, he, he learned from that. He, he grew. He's put himself around. And in his time with the Socceroos, he put himself around with Gus Hiddink and all these guys from overseas. He went and learned from other coaches that he's got over, knows overseas. And he developed and he grew as a coach. Um, and he knew the value of, he, he learned the value of player management and creating a culture and an environment that people can thrive and, and want to be successful in. And after I finished playing, I went and spent, you know, when I started going down the coaching path, I went and spent a week with him at Sydney FC. Um, when he was working there and I saw him putting the same things in place at Sydney FC, but on the next level, you know, um, it was, it was Central Coast Mariners, his mold, what he did there, but there was, okay, now it's to the next level. Now we're going to do this plus this and this and make it better in this way. Uh, and you could just see him evolving as a coach and you can see when they went to the World Cup, it was that siege mentality again. It's us, you know, we're all here together and he's created that environment where, um, they all love to be there. Um, and, you know, I think probably in that scenario where when you're playing for your national team, I think that's, it's a lot easier to get the players to buy in. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's still not easy. It's hard. And he's done a great job at it. Yeah, absolutely he has. Um, I want to touch on something you mentioned before when we were uh, talking about Nick Montgomery. You mentioned you were talking about, uh, Scotland, not as a stepping stone, but the fact of, its location and, you know, how you're right kind of in the, in the, um, in the spotlight, I guess, for particularly England, I guess. Um, and of course you played in Scotland, uh, for quite a few years and in England as well. Um, and we've got a lot of players, a lot of young players going to Scotland at the moment. Um, and also sometimes in England as well. What, what do you think, I guess, about that as, as a pathway, um, for, for young Australian players, for your Cal Newenoffs, for your, you know, Cameron Devlin's and all these guys? I think it's a great uh, opportunity. Uh, you know, we see lots of people on social media say, oh, you know, the difference between the SPL and the A-League, it's not really that different. So why are players leaving here to go there? Because they're in the shop window. It's so easy for a scout to or a coach down, you know, from one of the big, you know, the premiership or the championship, say, oh, I've heard about this player, send a scout up, and the scout can drive up and watch him play. Now, watching people play in person at a stadium, when you're watching them play is completely different to watching them on TV or video or highlights. Um, 
the amount of players that go and coaches that go from the Scottish leagues down into the English leagues, uh, you know, and go on and have careers there is frightening um, because it's just above the border. It's very close. It's a competitive, strong league. Uh, and, and like I said, there's plenty of eyes on them. Um, so I think it's a great move for all these Australians. It's still a competitive, strong, physical league, which suits Australians as well. Um, and, yeah, they're in that shop window. It makes a huge difference. And in the role you do now in the media, you always have, I guess, your finger on the pulse on how football is going in the country, how we're talking about it. And in the last year, you know, World Cup doing fantastic in the Men's World Cup, hosting and doing well in the Women's World Cup, Arnie and Anne's doing great things on the international stage. How important is that, I guess, for us and how we talk about football and how we are perceived in the football world for those opportunities to arise? Uh, it's massive. You know, I, I think we've all been watching Ange for a number of years now uh, as as Australians and coaches in Australia going, we want you to do well, Ange, because, you know, one coach does well and all of a sudden it can open the doors for others. Now, would Monty have got the opportunity to go to Hibs? Potentially, because he has a lot of contacts over there, but they've seen now what Ange can do there. You know, we've got um, Kevin Musket doing well in Japan at F Marinos as well. You've got um, coaches, Aussie coaches now starting to pop up all over the world and starting to do things. We've got Joe Montemuro, you know, doing well in, in the women's side of things. So this all opens up more opportunities for players, coaches, um, and, and analysts, whatever it is to, to, to go and make that move overseas. And the more, more, uh, Aussies or, well, I'll class Monty as an Aussie because he's got the passport. Um, the more Aussies we get going over there and doing well, then you, you see it quite often in, in players, you know, certain players or a team will do well in the World Cup and then all of a sudden there's an influx of players from that country going to the big five leagues in Europe. And I think that can happen with us as well. Mm -hmm. And you talk about um, opportunities. I'm going to take a bit of a turn with this. Um, we're currently in the Australia Cup, which is fantastic and gives a lot of opportunities for young players here in Australia. But sometimes it gives opportunities for some older players, maybe some that are 42 years old playing at Edsworth. That's called <laughs> a world against Newcastle. Let's <laughs> about that one. Because that goal, I often think about that goal, to be honest with you. That was amazing. Yeah, look, I'll, it wasn't a one-off. I was actually still playing week in, week out. Um, you know, some people should have said, said that, you know, uh, I should have retired and let some young players come through. Well, my argument was, well, I wouldn't have to retire if the young players were good enough to push me out of the position. <laughs> um, yeah, look, it was good. I was uh, actually working at the Jets at the time when we played that match, so I, it was a uh, it was good for me. I was working very closely with uh, you know a coach of the youth team. I worked was out there with the first team quite often uh, at training, and so to play in that game was quite good. And um, yeah, it wasn't a bad goal to sign off on, was it? I'll, I'll, I'll I scored that one and I walked off at half time. Ernie Merrick uh, walked over to me and had a few swear words in my ear and I said, that's it, Ernie. I'm done. I'm finished. <laughs> I've pulled my calf and I'm never coming back to football. So uh, it was a nice way to sign out. Um, you mentioned, you mentioned Ange before. Um, and you go back to that era. Um, of the Brisbane Raw Mariners. I mean, it was almost for a few years there. It was almost like Arsenal, Manchester United in the early 2000s. It was like, you know, th these were the two Titans. Um, when, when you come, like, what was the feeling coming up against those Raw teams? Um, you know, the, the Raw Salona teams, I guess. And then did you kind of always think 
yeah, this guy, you know, he's revolutionized something here and he's going to go on and, and, and do it elsewhere? Um, I'll probably get you think back there and you're a player. You're probably not looking too much on the coaches, the other coaches mm-hmm. and how they're doing. I just knew I hated playing Brisbane because they just, for the first two years, they just had the wood on as the bastards. And, um, <laughs> you know, they had the rotations going out wide and they confused everyone with that stuff. And, and, um, you know, they just seemed to keep, well, we all see, we know now 12, 15 years later that it's Andrew's model that they, they just move that ball and they keep moving and moving and it's relentless. And you just feel like that you can never get the ball. And that's probably the first. Two years playing against them in 2009, 10, 10, 11, whatever it was, um, 10, 11, 11, 12. Whenever we played them, there was this underlying feeling with us that they're just so good. Um, mm. you know, if we're going to beat them today, we're going to have to be on our very best to have the opportunity to beat them. And they almost, I, I don't know, I can't even remember if we did beat them in the first two years. They were just, oh, they were painful. God, they were good. Um, and then, um, the third season, the year we won the league, that's when we sort of felt, okay, the tide had turned. We, we, we changed a few things and then all of a sudden we worked out. You know, I can clearly remember Arnie sitting down with us and talking about their rotations and how we were going to stop it. And as players, it sort of went, oh yeah, okay, it's not such a panic after all. We can work that out. But then Ange moved on as well. So that may have had something to do with it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to go back to, yeah, your time playing in like the English leagues and the Scottish leagues. And we just, we just talked before about the pathway. Um, like how closely do you follow those leagues? Number one. And then also like, have you seen a massive change in the style now to, to what it was probably when you played? I'd imagine it was probably a bit more physical, a bit more maybe counter attacking and a bit more, you know, probably a bit more direct with the way teams play it as well. Yeah. Look, I think that's the general rule in football, isn't it, at the moment, that, um, you know, you can even watch League One and League Two teams. Some of them are playing wonderful football in England now where uh, you've still got your rough and tumble teams that are big and strong and like to go direct, but football's evolving. Uh, it always evolves. Um, times are changing and, and, you know, with all the analysts and statisticians that come in and, and they can work out, you know, what's the best percentage of where the ball needs to go and how you get it there. Um, and it's proven that, you know, the more you play, get the ball down and move it rather than play long balls, stats, the stats show and, and, and all the, and everything shows that that's the way football's moving. Um, you know, that's obviously always these things start from the top and they filter down. And, and yeah, look, I, I think some of the football that's being played, not just in England, but across the world, it, you can sit down and watch some football in, in some of the other leagues and go, it's, it's amazing football, you know. Down, fast pace, moving the ball, one and two touch, some beautiful one v one movements, and I think that it's just going to keep evolving that way. Um, and it's all driven by analysts, statistics. You know, Graham Arnold told me, uh, I think it was when he was at Sydney FC that he got his uh, analyst to go and um, analyze the top five, all the goals in the top five leagues in the past season or three seasons. And he, they had it worked out that in certain area of the pitch, and he used to mark squares on the pitch on the side, you know, on the edge of the uh, penalty box. If you're a, a player facing forward in that area, you cross the ball in between the penalty box, uh, the penalty spot, and the six yard because percentages say that's your best time mm. to, to to best areas to score. While the defenders are facing back and running towards their own goal, he had 
lines drawn on the pitch. So if any time in a game you got into that area, you didn't even look. You just put the ball into that area that was the red zone because the stat said that was the most prolific place to score goals. And that's that's the other developing side of the game, which is massive, is all of that data, um, which probably wasn't there, you know, at, across the board 15 years ago, but now it, everyone's got access to it. You know, you, you can get programs that almost do half of it for you. Um, when you're down at the lower level. So I think that's influenced football in a massive way. Mm -hmm. And another big thing, I guess, before you get to that point, is actually getting our kids playing. We often speak about how our kids don't play enough football in this country. And spoke to Taylor Regan and did that article about the Newcastle Football Academy that you guys have started. Was, I guess, the thinking behind it? And what are you, I guess, trying to achieve out of that program for the Newcastle region? Well, again, I'll go back to Arnie and his data because we talk about the, the kids not playing enough and he did the data across, I think it was the top 50 nations in the world. And the data showed that the more minutes played by players under 23 in their, in their top leagues yeah. directly correlated to the amount of players they ended up having mm. into professional, you know, sustained professional careers. Direct correlation. Now at that stage, we, we were playing eight NYL games. In our youth system, we don't even play them at the moment, but we're at least our players, our, our uh, A-League Academy teams are now playing in NPL system. So they're now getting 30 games pretty much in most areas. Plus you add on to that friendlies and, and off season games between academies. Um, the, main, the main thing between with Newcastle League Football Academy is we looked at that and we said, right, I said there's a whole heap in each age group. If you've got 30 kids that are all talented, 16 of them get picked for the academy and they go into their academy and they train four days a week. The other 15, 16 that in that 30, 32 will go back to their club team and go back to two sessions a week. So when you look at over the course of maybe two years, when one group's doing four sessions and the other's doing two and the four are elite together uh, pushing each other harder, you're the, the distance just gets bigger and bigger between the two groups. Um, so what we want to do, we are doing, is offering an extra session for each age group from under eights under, to under 16s where we actually give them a professional training session. So kids that we, we look at who are just outside potentially or who are recommended to us to be outside the academies, we'll give them extra, an extra session and that includes prehab, prehab stuff with the bands, an hour of technical individual work, uh, in small groups, we do the strength and conditioning components after, which for most of those guys is body weight, but it's getting them into the mindset of this is what you do in, in a professional. And then we finish with ice baths for the recovery phase. So, it, and we offer, um, nutritionist talks and we're trying to get some mindset stuff as well, because what we want to try to do with these kids is an early age to go, well, all right, you might not be in those academies now, but if we can keep pushing you and getting the right things, um, and the processes in place now, well, then when you do go into those programs, you should, if that, if they're doing all those things correctly, it won't be a big step for you. You'll go, all right, well, we've been doing that already. We know what we're, what's, what's, um, we're supposed to do. And yeah, it's been great. We've been enjoying it so far. We've got about 90 kids in our program at the moment. We've got plenty on the waiting list. We're trying to build another field so we can get more in. Um, and I think between six and eight have gone into the Jets for next season and we've got a few down at the Mariners trialling there. So hopefully we can get a few more in there. And ultimately the goal is to try and get these kids to have more sessions, more training and, and get them into a higher standard of training. 
Mm-hmm. And I guess Newcastle is a real football hotbed, but in recent years, you haven't seen that translate to professional level. Is that, I guess, your way of helping bridge the gap? Because all of you guys have had experience in that region, obviously passionate about the region. Is that your way of, I guess, helping out? Yeah, well, three of us, Taylor, uh, Regan, Ben McNamara, and myself, are obviously all um, grew up in Newcastle. Roy's an adopted Novocastrian, Roy O'Donovan. He's, he lives in Newcastle now and, and, and he's staying here as well. He loves it here. And that's right, we just want to try and add a little bit more um, to, to these kids and give them that because I think over a, for a number of different reasons for the last 10, 20 years, we probably – we Newcastle was – Back in the day, one of the most Socceroos came from this region. And then all of a sudden, it's been 22, 23 years since our last Socceroo, which I think was Robbie Middleby, um, whose son incidentally plays with my son uh, in under-13s at the Jets at the moment. But 23 years to not produce a Socceroo from this region is criminal for the fact that there's such a big catchment. We go all the way up to the, to the border. I think, you know, as I said, a number of factors have contributed to that. But if we can help in some way to try and, you know, add a little bit more for these kids and give them our experiences of what takes to get there to be a professional, then, you know, hopefully we can we can help a little bit. Did you get some um, dirty looks about the 6.50am start times? <laughs> yeah, well... From, from parents? That's, uh, that's, <laughs> that's, the parents, That's they need to learn if that's what their kids want to do, then they've got to show the dedication. And to be fair, look, that was part of it. A part of it is, you know... Do you, do you, will you be able to get up and will you be able to turn up on time and punctuality? And, you know, the kids will tell you if you ask them that when it gets to 6.50 and there's guys, cars pulling up in the driveway um, and we're supposed to be doing our band work, I'm the first one standing there going, oh, who am I blaming? Is it the kid or is it the parent? And <laughs> to be fair, most of the kids put their hand up and say, you blame me. I'm the one who wants to be here. So we're trying. That's I know you're joking, but that's another part of it is mm, you know, mm. punctuality, being part of a team, doing the, you know, getting everything right to be there and do it. Yeah. Yeah. I totally, yeah, totally agree. Suck sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was going to ask as well. Um, so your time coaching, actually, first we'll start with you mentioned Guam, uh, before, and that's, that's one where you go through the Daniel McBreen CV and you go, Oh, Guam assistant manager. So, um, just just give us some insight. How 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 was that experience? That was that was good. It was interesting. Um, a good friend of mine, Carl Dodd, had got the job as the head coach and and asked me to to come in as an assistant, which really was uh, for the most part from a distance. You know, he'd help. He'd want me to help write session plans or or look at games and matches and do some analysis of of us and the opposition and stuff like that. And then when we went into camps, which was Generally in Japan, um, I'd go over there and we'd go into camps before games and that was a really good learning experience. Um, you know, not much resources for Guam, not a big talent pool to pick from. So Carl spent a lot of time, um, as all national team coaches do, trying to find, especially in America because of the Guam being part of America, is that, okay, how can we, where can we find some Guamanians that have got grandparents who are from Guam and, and, might, and might, might rename that the Stadget strategy. Yeah, well, exactly. That's well, that's what you've got to do, and that's you've got to try to find it. And it was a real eye opener. It was, um, it was great to go and work with people. And you know what? They might be ranked two hundred and twelve or whatever they whatever they were in the world, but the kids and the players, mate, they their dedication was um, 
right up there. They they wanted to be there. They worked hard. They were so willing to learn and 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 take on advice. Um, but they were probably in the situation growing up. They didn't have all the stuff that you know many other countries had. So they were behind the eight ball. But it was a great experience. I learned a lot. Um, yeah, and uh, it was uh, good to get over to Guam as well. Yeah, and then you had uh, your time obviously at the Jets. Now I'm not sure how much you want to talk too much about it and go into too much detail, but you had, um, you know, some claims there, um, about, you know, the youth development being neglected, which you hit back at, you know, about, um, as well. Um, and, and eventually departed. I guess looking at the Jets at the moment, you know, are you, do you look at and, and feel frustrated that maybe them being the professional club in Newcastle, should they be doing more to promote, you know, some of the talent that is there to, to give it professional opportunities and, and talk about all the things we've, we've just discussed? Or, um, you know, is it is it something that you just, you know, you're not really giving too much thought about, I guess? Yeah. I wouldn't say I'm not giving you too much thought. I, I, <laughs> I can't tell you how many conversations I have with football people in Newcastle about how we can improve things. Um Look, the fact that there's no owner, like outright owner of the club doesn't help. Newcastle, as far as I've ever been involved, has always been run on a shoestring. Um, there's never been enough money in there. So you're always, it teaches you how to um, adapt and be um, creative with the way that you can do things. Um, yeah, I spent a lot of time where you okay we don't have a budget for this okay so I'd be go I'd go out and we need to we need, well, obviously we need to use the gym all right well we've taken your budget off you for the gym you've not got no budget for the gym anymore all right so I'd go to the gym and say what if we put you on the front of shirt sponsor could that be a, you know you become creative with that stuff and you have to wheel and deal and and you're trying to get the most and look you, you, you set the bar high if you're not setting the bar up here and you want everything you can possibly have and then there's a minimum that you will take to take it and if you're always fighting for that minimum and not fighting between the minimum and, and the top then you're always fighting a losing battle uh, and in the end the reason I left I thought that um, the powers that be and some of the people involved in the club at the time went were being detrimental to the to the youth system I couldn't see a pathway for the youth system so in the end we decided that we'd go uh, different ways because I said I didn't want to put my name to it anymore. Um, seven years of working hard in that area with no budget and no no facilities and all that stuff and 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 really going out to find fields for myself at times um, it wears down on you. And um, look, I still am in contact with the people at the club at the moment. Um, talking to Gary Van Egmond, who's the academy director, this morning, and talked to Northern New South Wales as well this morning uh, today about things we can do better and how can we improve and and how. Others, a community, and how can we embrace all the people? There's plenty of people in Newcastle who would love to help. Um, and how it's just how can we put that into place and, and get it back to being a powerhouse, uh, you know, and producing young players. Now, Rob Stanton has been great since he's come in. Um, he's been absolutely fantastic. He, re he realizes that to also engage the community, they want to see some of their own in there. Um, mm -hmm. and he's not going to just go and hand out. Oh, we're just going to give positions to players. They've got to earn it, but he wants them to go and earn it. And he, players can now see that there's a pathway again where I don't think there was um, previously. Mm -hmm. And I think us both being from Adelaide is what we've seen in recent years here. I think all these yeah. local clubs can see their themselves yeah. in that senior squad these days. And I guess being in that system yourself, you can kind of really wear your diet down when you're constantly fighting and clawing for things. 
I guess and I appreciate how maybe the Newcastle Football Academy was kind of a thing of, well, if you won't give it to me, I'll go do it myself kind of thing. <laughs> it's that also a way of keeping, I guess, the that local environment, be it Northern New South Wales or the clubs, accountable and showing if we can do this, surely you can at least match it since you are the professional environments. Yeah, look, uh, and we've got we make no bones about it. We we marketed ourselves as local coaches for local people um, because we've all of us, or, or Roy has, has come here and joined us, but the other three of us, we grew up in Newcastle. We played in Newcastle. We all went overseas and played professionally uh, for a number of years, you know. Um, so we know what it takes and how it can be hard. And we all had hardships along the way. So that's the other thing, you know, kids sometimes get cut from the A-League squads and they go, oh, well, that's me done. Well, mm. you know what? It's great. I can sit there then and tell them that I never made, I never played in a youth team for in the NSL or the A, or, you know, the A-League equivalent, which is the NSL. I wasn't ever picked. I was always told I was too small because I know I'm six foot one now, but until I was 17, 18, I was five foot. I didn't grow. Was that say too small? What? <laughs> yeah, 100%. They all said, oh, yeah. you're too small. I'd go away to a tournament, score five goals in the tournament, and they'd say, oh, we're not picking you for the next round because you're too small. I'm like, mm. well, I scored against the, the two big centre-backs that you picked. Yeah, it doesn't matter. So I'm having these conversations with kids now and say, don't worry, you keep working away. You know, I didn't get my first professional contract till I was 23 at Newcastle, and I ended up playing for 16 years as a pro. Everybody has a different path, and that's what some of these kids kids need to hear as well, that it's not all, oh, we all go into the A-League at under-13s and we go all the way through, and that's the story. Everyone's got a different story, a different path, and it is never, ever a straight line that you just go woof up to the top. It mm-hmm. is hard work, knockbacks, injuries, rejections, all these different things that um, these kids, we want to try and help them with. And it's uh, funny that you mentioned that I had a conversation a few weeks ago with Craig Goodwin's dad, Tony, after he won the Johnny Warren, he told Craig, well, you're still not good enough for the youth team over there. It's <laughs> <So> obviously <laughs> that was his part over there. And it's a fact that a lot of these players actually face that rejection. And Craig was lucky to have that support to be able to take that part in Melbourne and eventually work his way up in the league. But many players don't have that financially or emotionally so how important is it i guess the mental side of what you do as well all three of you guys four of you guys sorry having that career having those disappointments to be able to translate that to them i spoke to ezio momile from Mm. central coast who does that side of things with them and for me just hearing what he has to say it feels like in the year 2023 it's massive and it's only going to keep getting bigger the mental side of the game and it's often neglected because it's the cheapest one to cut off yeah, 100%. 100%. Um, you know, you look back at, you go back to when we were growing up and the mentality was very different about around mindset. And, um, you know, I listened to a few podcasts of ex-plays in the UK and it's similar stories of, of our generation of it was just, I'll oh, suck it up and get on with it. And, you know, and you either fell to the wayside or you didn't. And then you talked about, they talk about so many mental problems people later on because it wasn't dealt with. Mental side of the game is is ginormous. Um, I don't think we can emphasise how important it is to have a good environment, a good culture, um, an area where people feel safe that they can talk um, to their coaches or whoever it is that person in their club. Um, And that's why we're we're trying to hook up with Newcastle University and and get some of their people involved as well. We, We can give them 
the footballer's perspective on that and our experiences from that, but we're not professional uh, in the in the psychological side of it. So we want to try and get those people who are studying that to try come in and, and give their twist on it as well. And maybe even if it's just some coping mechanisms on anxiety or, you know, performance anxiety or just little things that can help those kids just piece that together a little bit better in the process to help them get through that and push through to the other side because, you know, it can be daunting. You know, it can feel at times like you're going nowhere and that it's never going to happen. But, um, you know, sometimes just to know that someone's there to listen to you and, and, and help you talk through that is enough. And it is only going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think a lot of clubs, in particular professional clubs, don't realise how important that is. Mm. It's interesting. Um you mentioned you talking about Rob Stanton before and you were talking about um how you know it's about almost like promoting the local players a bit more so the fans kind of buy into that a bit more. And being here in Adelaide, I mean it's it's just incredible when Nestory kinda goes and warms up and he starts getting prepared to, to come on and like it's almost like the same hype as when Del Piero would come down here, you know, back in the day. Like, you know, it's and you put that in perspective and you think, I mean he's yeah, it's just a seventeen-year-old kid, but that's that's kind of how big that can be, particularly in Australia, I think, right? Because you know, I think there's always that grassroots, you know, local, the local lad sort of thing. So, um, yeah, I guess just it, just an interesting sort of um thing to see, you well, know, we all that want to see our own, don't we? Let's be honest, yeah. we all want to see one of our own out there, like like even in Newcastle, Archie Goodwin's probably the the, the one mm-hmm. that been talking about coming through he's had some difficult times with injuries but even when he would warm up on the sideline in Newcastle the crowd would start to to just because he was going for the local kids going for a while he might get on and they'd all be up ready to go Mm. um you know watching some of those crowds in in Adelaide sometimes you feel like I wish I was from Adelaide so I could be a part of that because it's fantastic and And Tonis loves that you just see to be producing them coming through and you're doing something right I my first year in coaching, I, I, I was the Jets under-15s coach and I went to the NTC tournament and I went down to Canberra. And it was my first real few months of, of coaching. And when I got down there, uh, uh, no bones about it, South Australia were head and shoulders above everyone else technically as a team, the way they played. And who was their coach? Carl Viet. And I just said to Carl after day one or day two, I said, mate, can I have a coffee? I want to have a, sit down and pick your brain and tell me what you're doing uh, because you're obviously doing something right. And he sat down and talked to me about it and it just seemed so simple, the process of how they've got it, how they've got it set up. And I came back to Newcastle and was, okay, this is what they're doing. We could probably do something. They've got a similar um, pool of size of players than than, than us, uh, as us, and maybe we can do this. And it was um, heartbreaking to see that, you know, we just couldn't get that working. Um, but we all want to see our own. Um, if we can produce young players, you'll, the, the fans will come in droves. And the question, I used this tweet in the night before recently. I can't remember who said one of the broadcasts or journalists that, yes, we are a football country, but it feels uh, like Garb. Very, that's Daniel Garber. That's Daniel yeah. Garber, but it's very fractured. You've got the football people here, the football people there, the football people there. And when you pull them in in that way, because it's not just the African community with Nestle, it's Adelaide, Croatia. 
that developed this kid. And when you have things, I spoke to you before about this creation, you hear them talking about him. Mm. You think it's creation the way they're talking <laughs> about him, you know? It's yeah. they get behind the club because they see an extension of the club in there. Same thing with Newcastle, when you had Daniel Pena, for example, the uh, Brazilian community would get around the Jets. So for me, and I don't know if you feel the same way, it's about, I guess, finding ways to engage those different communities into our professional league, which, again, is still a very young league. It's only 20-odd years that it's been around, unlike leagues that have been around for hundreds of years. Mm. Yep. Yep. We're, we're still babies, you know, and we've probably, we've done some things very well on the way and we've made lots of mistakes along the way, which is normal. Um, yeah. We've just got to try and keep working together. And I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head there of trying to get that, that fractured part. Let's bring them together. And I think it's been one, one problem with that is we're such a big country and we sort of grew up in smaller different areas away from each other and so we all build our own little enclaves and now we want to protect ourselves and oh, we want to look after our, you know, northern New South Wales wants to stay here and Adelaide wants to stay over here. Well, you know, we've grown past that now. We need to start thinking bigger picture. We need to be united and that is across the board. We need to work together to go to councils and, and governments uh, as a united front, not, uh, oh, well, I've got a zone football federation asking for money here and then, and then the, then a federation asking here mm. and then the, and the A-League club. Well, I, well the, the government says and the council say, well, you, you're all different. Why, why will we give money? We, we don't know which way to give it. So a united other sport comes in and goes, their, their federation walks in and says, we want this. Oh, yep. Here's the proposal. Oh, you're all behind it together. Okay. No worries. Where I feel in, in Australia where, a lot of people, and I, and this is probably sweeping. I don't mean every single person, but I think we're very we look after our own patch. Mm. I want to make sure what's right for me, and we've got to look at that big picture and say, you know what? If we look at what's best for everyone, we're all going to prosper. So let's get together and work together rather than looking after our own little patch. Let's try and work together. There's been a lot of differences in the past, and I know it's hard to put them aside and work together. And 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 people will see that. Oh, is that best for me in the long run? If we're unified, it'll be better for everyone. Yeah, I think it's interesting you mentioned that because, and I've spoken to Antonis, I've spoken to to all all our guys here at FPF about like what what we try and do, which is to try and spotlight all different things that are happening, you know, in in the different NPLs kind of across across the country. Um, and I say like, you know, I, I want to know what's going on in North and New South Wales. I want to know what's going on in WA. Like, you know, it doesn't mean I have to be, you know, hey. You know, I got to turn on the the NPLWA game at four thirty on a Saturday every week. No, of course, but you know, it's it's important to keep informed. And uh, yeah, I think it's I think it's important that uh, that you mentioned that because yeah, I have similar feelings that really yeah, you know, not it's not always about just looking after or being interested in you know what's maybe in your backyard. It's also important to to I guess you know have that more holistic view of of football across the country. So yeah, um, very important indeed. Okay. Second to last sort of thing, and I can't believe I haven't asked you this yet because you're going to be commentating on on the big season that that we've got uh, coming up. But general thoughts, I guess, on this upcoming season because we've seen some interesting um, recruitment from from different clubs. We've seen some lack of recruitment from some clubs. Um, and <laughs> did you get your local area there? Was it? <laughs> <laughs> um, We've seen the champions um, be a little bit um, gutted in a sense as well. Melbourne City's had a bit of a different strategy to what they're doing. So, what what are you kind of what are you kind of um, thinking going into the new season? 
Well, look, I think it's exciting. I think what the Mariners have done has made a lot of people go, do you know what, um, maybe we do give kids a go. Um, you know, maybe there is a lack of signings, not just through um, lack of finances, but also, a, 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 I guess, that's a, a targeted way of, of moving. To, look, okay, we well, there is young talent out there. There's lots of talent moving overseas now, and we are producing um, these young players through our academies and through our MPL system. So let's start giving them opportunities. And I think it's really exciting to see that. Um, it's going to be last year. It was probably the most, the tightest season we've seen since the A League was inception. That I think all every single club was able to make the finals two rounds out, which is crazy. Uh, and I, I, I think it could be the same this year. You know, like you said, Mariners were the champions. They they sold off five of their their best players and had to rebuild and now they've lost their head coach and their assistant coach and their goalkeeper coach. Uh, Melbourne City basically lost a whole midfield as well. Um, so they've you know they've gone out to recruit. It's it's uh, I think it's interesting. I think it's going to be another tight season. I think we saw fantastic football last year and uh, I'm excited for it to start up again. Um, is there any? Any new signing or any um, managerial move, like let's say an Alan Stadich, something like that, which has really caught your eye, that you're really going to be any narrative, I guess, that you maybe got your eye on to see how it plays out. Yeah, look, Stadich has always been an interesting one. As soon as it was rumoured that he was going to Perth, it was like, well, okay, this would be good to see him because we we saw him for that one year at the Mariners, and then he dipped out and went right. Okay, I've I've done. I think I've done well, and he's dipped, and then he went off to the Philippines and. Again, he's done fantastic there and, you know, he seems to have done fantastic everywhere he's gone, to be honest. So, uh, I think Perth will be looking at the, all the fans over there will be looking at him and thinking, all right, um, I think we can do some good stuff here. And he's, is he signed a three year deal? Is that right? Yes, I, I believe so. Yeah. So he's got, you know, he's got time now to, to probably this first year to start building his squad and then going from there and moving on. So that, that's always interesting. I know you guys are looking at Adelaide and saying, where, We've now lost Craig Goodwin. That's awesome. Yeah, Antonis really wants to know your thoughts on the uh, on Adelaide. <laughs> yeah, um, not much movement there, huh? Yeah, I think yeah they've kind of sat on it, and now that Goodwin is gone, I think they've realised oh, we have to <laughs> make a move. But it's a lot easier to make moves in June than it is in mid September. So that's what I have to deal with right so- now, I guess. So what is it we've got? Is it with 9.40 here? Is that, uh, does that mean there's 50 minutes left in the transfer window? Yeah. Maybe, um, so, maybe, yeah, maybe um, that millions of dollars you got from the Saudis <laughs> is going to bring in about five players. No, um, the, I guess the good thing is that Ailey clubs haven't really been ones to go and splash the cash to clubs. I think the, la- the f- only time I think Adelaide's done it was with Riley McGree, and that yeah. worked out all right. Yeah. But I think the only problem with the trans window closing is eliminates the loan market. Other than that, it's going to be anyone that's still free and, and attached. But yeah. yeah, you've got a bit of work to replace Goodwin because we know he's more than just a player. <laughs> but again, that's... You make your bed, you sleep in it, and you have to make it a lot better now next time before the season kicks off. <laughs> but yeah, again, a lot of exciting players coming through and very excited to watch them play, but you just need an experienced squad to surround them and support them with not just the physical stuff, the mental stuff that we just spoke about too. Mm. And Craig was very good at that as well, wasn't he? He, he, he took yeah. on that mentor role to a few of the young boys um, and he was very, very level-headed guy. So he will be missed not just for yeah. his footballing, but as you say, leading those young guys. 
And I don't know, I'm going to go on a tangent here, but I always say how Craig is like the personification of South Australian football, that it didn't work out for you for a while, but you fought, you fought, you fought, and suddenly you are South Australian football. So it's much more than a player. Hopefully we see him back in a couple of years, but we'll see how it goes. Well, he's just traded one SA for another SA. Exactly, and he's used to that essay <laughs> as well. I think he'd much rather be in our essay, but again, you can't knock him. He is absolutely, it's just so much more than the footballer. Yeah. Mm. yeah. All right. Um, I know, I know we've kept you a while, Daniel. Last, last thing. Um, it's 10 years from now, 15 years from now. What does a week in the life of Daniel McBreen look like? No, I've won the Euro Millions and I'm sitting on a beach somewhere and no one's seen me. I've got long hair and a beard and no one knows who I am. It'd be great. Um, sorry, that's my dream. Um, but you got the hair and the beard, though. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. The hair's starting to come along. I'm trying to get it to grow. It takes a while. The beard, I've just been a bit lazy. Uh, I, know that I don't mind it, but the wife's telling me it's got to go. So we'll probably see that one gone by the time I'm on TV next. But um, look, if I'm... Uh, what are we going, 10, 15 years? And what am I now, 46? Jesus, I'll be nearly retired then. If I've had a good career in, in the media and still involved in football and helping um, young kids to try and get anywhere close to realising their dream as footballers, um, I'll be a happy person. Um, that's sort of the two things at the moment that are my passion. You know, obviously I've got my family, but I, I love my work. I love working with the people and I really have a passion for just in any way helping, whether it's coaching, mentoring um, younger kids to try and realise their dream. Uh, if I sit back in 15 years and can say, I like, you know, watching kids who are playing professionally and say, I've I worked with that kid, I, I know that kid, I, I had a conversation that helped that kid, whatever it was, um, that would give me nothing more than great satisfaction. Yeah, I think uh, we all feel like you know uh, we can look back in, in 10 years or you know in 20 years 30 years whatever it is and feel like we had you know some impact you know, on 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 australian football right so yeah i think very well said um and tonus anything else to anything else to uh put to daniel oh, before thanks. we wrap up We've touched on literally everything in football tonight. It's been a very, it's been a very productive hour. It's been way, it's way past my bedtime, guys. <laughs> this is what we do. We get people on and we we trick them into saying it's thirty and forty five minutes. Then we ask them questions for an hour and fifteen. But um... that's all right. I've been talking for most of it, so sorry about that. <laughs> You're right. All right. Um, front page football. Make sure you're following us on social media: Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, LinkedIn. We're also on Threads, TikTok. Um, and the website frontpagefootball.net um, and yeah they'll do it for another episode of the Front Page Football Podcast and stay tuned might have a few more guests around the corner of course we've got the A-League and the A-League Woman coming up soon so content will be coming up for that as well until next time it's bye for now